0: All right, we are in the uh, Gospel of Matthew. If you'd like to follow along, we're in Matthew chapter 22. And uh, several years ago when I was in Oregon, there was a, a couple that wanted to get married at the church. They wanted to use our church building. The, the young lady was attending the university at the small town that we were in, and uh, they, didn't really, they didn't want me to officiate it. They had their, her uh, pastor when she was growing up, officiating the wedding, but uh, I was there just to kind of help make sure they knew where everything was, and on the day of the wedding, people showed up, and I found it really quite interesting because they were all dressed in this country western attire. And uh, this is, kind of gives you a sense of what everybody looked like. Uh, this isn't a picture actually of them, because actually they were more over the top than this. They had the bolo ties and the big belt buckles on top of these enormous uh, cowboy hats. And all the men were dressed up uh, in their western attire, and all the women were too. The women rose, wore these kind of uh, pinkish dresses with white, uh, uh, no, they had pink cowboy hats. And the bride had her white dress and a big white cowboy hat. And I remember watching, kind of looking in through in, uh, a window into the sanctuary. It was kind of like this, where you had windows you could look in. And this is not this is not uh, something I'm proud of, but I thought it was one of the most ridiculous looking things I'd ever seen. It just really felt very odd. Uh, and even the pastor that they brought in, he had his big old cowboy hat on too. And uh, And they were doing the wedding, and just thought, wow, I've never seen anything like this. And and I don't know if I really ever want to again and and yet after the after the wedding everyone was very nice and all that they were kind of milling around and this one guy came up and he goes well you you must be the pastor here and I'm like yeah how'd you know that and he goes well you're the only one that's not wearing a cowboy hat and I realized then that no matter how ridiculous something looks if you're the only one not doing it then you're the ridiculous one <laughs> you know you're the one that's not fitting in and so uh, so there was kind of a lesson learned there. But in the, in the passage we're reading today, Jesus talks about a wedding. He, he talks about a wedding banquet that a king is giving for his son. And remember, this is taking place right after Jesus had talked about the Pharisees being unfruitful. And he had gone through several uh, expectations that he had for them, that they were not meeting fruitfulness. And it's right after this, he continues talking about uh, this parable, but he shifts and going from being fruitless... He starts talking about this wedding. And this is a motif that Jesus uses more than once. And he uses it in different ways. Uh, This idea of the king giving a wedding. Uh, he, he, He tells it a bit differently in Matthew than he does in Luke, which is expected because Jesus was one of these guys that would travel around from place to place preaching. And so sometimes he would start a story, then he would kind of go a different direction based on his audience that was there listening. So that's one reason why if you read the Gospels and the stories have a little bit of a difference to him, that's because, because he was going from place to place, not telling the exact same story every single time. So let's read the one in Matthew chapter 22. It says this, Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatted cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Now, like most of Jesus' parables, the story is pretty straightforward. It's easy to grasp, you know, what's going on here. But also like most of Jesus' parables, there's a lot of subtlety going on as well. And before we get started, we have to remember that this is a parable about the kingdom of heaven. And so this being the case, there are some things about the kingdom of heaven that we know That those who were listening to this parable for the first time probably didn't understand and didn't know. And one of the things that we know is that we are not made righteous by our actions of goodness, but rather we are made righteous by the acts of Jesus Christ, most specifically upon the cross and the resurrection, where he became our substitutionary atonement. He's the Lamb of God who took upon himself the sins of the world so that we could benefit from that we could benefit from his action and in this our sins are forgiven and it's important to understand what sin is when you come into this particular parable here you know sin is essentially the manifestation of our selfish self-will which runs at odds with the will of God so we have our will and God's will which are colliding with each other and this is really kind of the the most basic definition of sin of not being in line with the will of God. And so this being the case, even our acts of righteousness, and we talk about this all the time, our acts of righteousness, which are motivated by our self-will, even if they have the outer appearance to the world as good, do not credit us the kind of righteousness which would allow us to stand in the presence of a perfect God and be there with confidence, knowing that we are completely without blemish, Completely without blame. In fact, Isaiah says this it says, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind our sins sweep us away. This is a, this is a actually a very poetic little verse. You know, it talks about uh, so our, our righteousness is like filthy rags. And what happens when we when we indulge ourselves in our own righteousness, trying to work ourselves into a place of of feeling like we are are able to work our way into heaven, really what ends up happening is our soul shrivels up because we're not being nourished by the goodness of God. We're trying to be nourished by our own goodness, and we end up starving ourselves, and and we shrivel up like a leaf, and then it says, and the winds of our sins sweep us away. But on the positive side, Isaiah also says this. He says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And it's important to understand as we read this parable that this ver- these verses, like out of Isaiah, would be at the foremost forefront of the mind of the people listening to Jesus because they knew their Old Testament. And especially if they were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the scribes, They were very familiar with the Old Testament. They probably have it close to memorized, if not memorized. And so when Jesus makes these allusions into the Old Testament scriptures, they would immediately know what he's talking about. A good example is on the cross when Jesus is being crucified and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you read Psalm 22, you'll see why he says that because that's the beginning of the psalm that talks about Being crucified, even though it was written by David, you know, centuries beforehand, it all lines up. So you often will see that Jesus kind of throws out some lines in in his teachings that tie into the Old Testament. And the second one here is very important to understand, that even the prophet Isaiah, way back in the Old Testament, understood that any righteousness he had had been given to him by God. He had been clothed in garments of salvation, arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. These are the ones that in Hebrews 11 The writer in Hebrews 11 says these were the forerunners of faith. By faith, they believed these things, even though they were believing in something that had yet to happen while we look behind ourselves in history at what Christ has done. So with all that said, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. So what's in this parable? Well, obviously, you have this king preparing a banquet for the son. The God, the Father, is the king. The son is the Messiah, But then you have the first half of it being kind of a quick history of Old Testament Israel. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent a service to those who've been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. He sent out some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited, I prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted calf have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his fields, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged, and he sent his army to destroy those murderers and burn their city. Now, this is almost exactly a parable to just what he had said, if you read in the scriptures in in the previous chapter, when he talks about the vineyard being planted, and then the the owner goes off and he sends his servants to get some of the fruit. Remember, they were beaten, they were killed. He sends his own son, they were killed. So Jesus is telling the same story, but he's using some different illustrations to help people understand it. And this is basically the history of Israel. Israel was a, a people that had been selected by God to be an example, an illustration of, I think, a couple things. One, the blessing of being in relationship with God, which they were in very rarely. But also that human beings are most... Well, human beings are going to fail when it comes to trying to keep the rules that would allow them to be held in perfect righteousness with their God. It doesn't matter if they were the, the ancient Israel, if it was ancient back in the time, if it was ancient uh, Egypt, or if it was ancient Mesopotamia, or ancient uh, any other, the Akkadians, everyone would fail. If it was modern-day Germany or modern-day Americans, and we we're trying to get this thing, and we're going to do this by our own righteousness, modern-day Indonesians, we're all going to fail. And that's basically what the Old Testament shows is there's this failure in people's attempts to try and live the way that they think God wants them to live. And there's a lot of interesting stories in the Old Testament where you see these kind of breaks. Like one was when Israel said, we want a king. Remember that story way back when? For those of you who are familiar with your Old Testament history, uh, they say they want a king. And at the time, they had judges, and Samuel was the judge. And he says, a king is going to be miserable for you. And in fact, God tells Samuel to tell them the king is going to be miserable. He's going to like take from them. He's going to send them off into war. He's going to do all these things that will just make their life He's going to basically make them into slaves. And they say, "What? We want a king anyway." So you see, throughout the Old Testament, that really the 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 illustration of Israel is a, an entire history of us understanding that there's no way we as a people can live up to the expectations and standards of a perfect and pure God. And even Jesus laments this over Israel, that they were always in, in, uh, in rebellion, He says in Matthew, and we'll get to it later on. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who send to you, who are sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together, as a hen gathers the chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. And you know what, they're not the only ones that were not willing. This is something, like I said, we struggle with as just as a human species. But the rejection is not a surprise to God. And I think this is something that we need to understand. And none of this is a surprise. Sometimes the Old, Old Testament is written as if it's a surprise. Because I think the authors didn't quite understand that. Sometimes when we read about the fall in Genesis, the fall of humanity, it comes as a surprise that, that Jesus' is plan B But then you read later on, especially in the epistles of Paul, that Jesus was predestined from before time to be the Messiah. So none of this is a surprise. This is the plan of God. And it's taking us to a place where you read in the book of Revelation, where we are back basically in the garden, in the presence of God, but we're not naive about sin anymore. We're we're a different type of people. Anyways, that's getting down the road a little bit. But the point that's being made here is this isn't a surprise. And that the next step after this history of Israel, when we have it proven to us in a text that there's no way a people can live up to the expectations of a perfect God, then we have the Messiah. And so that's really the second half. The second half is this invitation that's given by God to walk by faith and not by sight, and he extends it to everybody, Jews and non-Jews. And this was a big deal in the minds of the Jews that the Gentiles could be invited in. That non-jewish people could be invited in this was a question that the church had even up into the early church when when the apostle paul and the apostle peter start bringing in non-jewish people they don't know what to do with that at first what do we do with that so he says this then he said to his servants the wedding banquet is ready but those i invited did not deserve to come go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find anyone so the servants went out to the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. So this invitation then is sent out by God to all, be they people of good quality, or be they people of bad quality. When they enter into the banquet, they're given the wedding clothes by the king, because you go back to the Isaiah passage where it talks about the righteousness is given to him. I have been arrayed in righteousness. They received the wedding clothes from the king, and it doesn't matter if they were good or bad. It doesn't matter if they're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if they were Jew or Gentile. They are all attired in the same way. They all come into the wedding feast of the king. You know, the king is giving for the son. All of them arrayed equally. They all stand as equally clean, equally arrayed in their new clothes before the king. And again, it goes back to this... this uh, Verse that Isaiah had written, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. And I have to remember this is the verse that would probably be going through their heads as he's talking. But there was one guest who felt like he could come to the banquet dressed however he wanted. And what's going on with this guy? Why does he feel like he can come however he wants? And it's important, even though the, the, the parable doesn't really say it, but this, other, this passage in Isaiah lets us know that the king is the one giving the wedding clothes. Because he's inviting people who are rich, inviting people who are poor. He's inviting people who are part of their traditions. Part of, he's inviting people who are not part of the tradition. So who's going to be providing the clothes so that everybody is, is appropriately attired? The king does. He's providing the clothing. He's the one clothing them in the garments of salvation. He's the one arraying them in the robe of righteousness. But there's this one guy there that's dressed in a way that's not fitting in. One of these things is not like the other. And at first, the king doesn't seem really angry with the guy. He says, friend, how'd you get in here without wedding clothes? He's basically just saying, you know... did you like slip in by accident did someone not give you something you know he calls him friend at first but the man is speechless and in his speechlessness the king figures out this guy chose to come this way this guy believed he could exercise his self-will and say i'm going to stand out as different i'm going to come arrayed in my own sense of what i should be wearing and in other words he came thinking his own sense of righteousness, his own sense of goodness is going to be enough to come to the wedding of the king. But it wasn't enough. His pride, which he wore as this badge of self-reliance, his good deeds, which he wore as a mantle of self-righteousness, these were all made to be shockingly shabby when compared to what the king had given, when compared to the wedding clothes the king had given to those who came to the banquet. And because this person came believing he could come in his own self will, the king has him removed. Then the king told the attendants, Tie him hand and foot and throw him outside to the darkness, where there'll be weeping and gnashing in teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. And before you get all freaked out about, Are you one of the chosen, even though you've been invited? Have you accepted the free gift of Christ through salvation, that he died for your sins, rose again? If you have, then you are the chosen. If you're coming to church thinking it makes you look good, thinking it's going to impress folks, thinking that it's going to somehow impress God, but you're still pretty much doing this on your own, and you really aren't relying upon Christ, you're relying upon yourself, then you're like the dude who shows up at the wedding banquet without the right clothes on. So I guess you're the ones that know best if you've invited, you've all been invited, whether or not you're chosen. And chosen is really an action. Do you accept what God has been given, what God has given you, made possible to you? He's given you the possibility for the robes of righteousness. Do you say, I don't really need those? I'm going to slip in on my own? Well, you can. And that's the truth. Sometimes we say, you know, sometimes we read verses like this last one especially, and we're like, you know what? I think God's a little bit harsh. Why can't we just live for ourselves? What's the problem? And you know what the truth is? You can live for yourself. Sure. You can live for yourself as much as you want. And you know what? You may even be successful in the eyes of the world living for yourself. I don't know any of these guys personally, but it seems to me the new crop of billionaires that all want to be space cowboys and trade in their old wives for new wives are pretty much living for themselves. They've got so much money that they're sitting upon that they are all decided they're going to get together and blast off into space. Instead of actually doing something with the people who are starving around the world or people who are stuck on the border between Belarus and Poland who are freezing to death, they're riding their rockets into space. Well, goody for them. But you know what? God's not all that impressed. It looks like success. And again, I don't know these folks personally, but it seems to me that there's there's just this thing when a person becomes a billionaire or something, they, they trade in the old wife, get in the younger model, and then do something crazy. Like, let's all make spaceships and fly to Mars. Kind of wish they would go. And in the church today, you see something very similar. You know, we want to Within the church, you see the church is really struggling with some issues today. The church is really struggling with some basically moral issues today. And basically what's happening is that human beings want to live for themselves and they want the church to somehow bless it. They want God to bless them living the way they want to live. And a lot of times the church caves in and does it because we've been told that if we don't cave in and do these things, then we're what? We're haters or we're discriminatory. Or whatever. And physics tells us that two objects can't occupy the same space and time at the space and time. And it's the same with the throne of your life. There's only going to be one king on the throne of your life. It's either going to be you living your life the way you want to live it, for you, by you, or it's going to be God, but it can't be both. There's only room for one on the throne, and it can't be both. But the blessed note in the parable is this, the invitation that is extended to the king's banquet is really extended to all. This is what the Apostle Paul means when he says more than once, in Christ there is no slave or free, Jew or Gentile, male or female, another place he says, you know, barbarian or Greek, you know, he has all these different, different ways of trying to explain that In Christ, regardless if you are the good quality people or bad quality people or however that gets determined by whomever, in the eyes of God, and we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we are all the same. And we stand before him in that same place of forgiveness. We stand before him in that same place of grace. And we stand before him in the same place of inheritance, which is a big deal, especially back in the time of Christ, which is one reason that he calls those who are in Christ the sons of God be they male or female, because it's important, because back then, a female didn't get any inheritance. Only the sons did. So while we are in Christ as the sons of God, be you male or female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, you have the equal inheritance in Christ. And this righteousness that we can stand in the presence of God doesn't come from ourselves, it comes from Christ. And I know that many of you know that. But just remember that. Because sin will eventually want to wrap you up back into yourself. One of the the dangers of faith, dangers of religion, when it goes from relationship to religion, is that we can tend to start to wrap back up into ourselves. And we can slowly usurp that throne and push the Holy Spirit off and get back on it. And where we may have been following the Lord five years ago, we might find ourselves on the throne thinking we're following Christ, but we're really following ourselves. And I'm not saying that's a salvation issue, but I am saying it is definitely a relationship issue. So may we have the courage to set ourselves aside and put on Christ so that we can be in this banquet with Him now and for eternity. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for Your Word and thank You for the fact that You give us so many different illustrations within Your Word of the same thing that reminds us again and again, that there's something more in store for us. There's something more in store for those that you created in the image of God. And that really, we just need to get out of our own way most of the time. Get out of our own way in in our sinfulness. Get out of our own way in our acts of self-righteousness. And just trust what you've done. And invest our life in what you have done. And Lord, there are times when we are, we are kind of more uh, up about doing that. There's some times that we're kind of grinding through, uh, you know, sort of the valley of faith. I don't know about my brothers and sisters here, but wintertime here for me, ugh, it's like grinding through a valley of faith. But rather we're on the mountaintop or in the valley, may we be mindful that the fact we have any life at all is because of you. And that in the end, it'll be worth it. And in those times of being in the dark and the cold, may we rely upon the light that is Christ, and may we be clothed in the warmth of your righteousness instead of the rags of our own. And when things are great and we're on top of the world, may we be be mindful that we're only in that place of rejoicing because of what you have done. So in all things, help us to keep our eyes on you as we walk this life through the mountaintops and through the valleys into the place of eternity where your banquet awaits us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.